0: everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Magnum Reads. As per usual, I'm Spencer, and with me are BJ and Sarah. How y'all doing?
1: Good, Spencer. How are you?
0: Uh, you know, vaguely drunk, because we've taken a very long time getting to this podcast, but, you know, we <laughs> will soldier through.
2: I'm impressed that you're taking care of that peanut butter whiskey. Uh,
0: no, no, that is sitting, staring at me across the room like the rest of the alcohol that I drink in this room and then never move from this room. Um... But yeah, this is one of the dangers we have when we record a podcast and then spend about two hours getting ready to record the next podcast, is the drinking doesn't effectively stop while the recording doesn't happen. But <laughs> we're still going to try to soldier through. Yep. This week, we are handling a short story that was recommended at kind of the last second by Sarah and sent to me by BJ, but Struck Me is a really interesting read. It's probably one of the shortest short stories we've done since some of the earliest ones that BJ recommended, but it has a hell of a lot of power attached to it. It is The Appropriation of Cultures by Percival Everett. And I'd never heard of the short story, and I'd never heard of the author. But Sarah, you recommended him. Uh, can you tell us anything about
1: him? Yeah, so this um, this particular short story comes from a collection of sto- short stories called Damned If I Do. And they span a variety of different genres. And not unlike the last short story that we did by N.K. Jemisin, um, uh, Cuisine de Mémoire, it is part of a collection that I think is really playing with genre and form in particularly interesting ways. Now, Percival Everett is also another um, African-American writer. He is a novelist. He has many acclaimed novels to his name, including um, I Am Sidney Poitier, as well as um, Erasure. And he likes to play around with form. He is a very postmodernist kind of writer. And what strikes me is that he is he is, I think, interested in the intersections of his identity as an African American author with the um linkages and lineages he feels with a certain type of postmodernism, which makes for a really fascinating understanding of how stories are constructed and what they are doing and what they are meant to do. And
0: just going down his bibliography, it strikes me that. While there are some undercurrents in terms of his themes, the various genres that he explores with seems incredibly diverse. Yes. This, this is a very interesting hodgepodge of different tastes of entirely separate areas of literature that he's flirted with over the years.
1: Yeah, at, at points he gets sort of esque, and he flirts with sci-fi, he does some Western stuff. Um, it is very interesting in what he chooses what he chooses to kind of work with. And we were talking a little bit before we started recording about, I think his particular positioning, which comes forth in this story as an African American author who is frequently um, occupying spaces that have a sort of history of black culture erased from them. And so I know that in this collection of short stories, Damned If I Do, there is there is a particular short story when he is thinking about the sort of place of a black cowboy, for example. Um, hmm. And in the short story that we are going to talk about tonight, he is talking about specifically um, a legacy of being black in the South that is perhaps a, a little different than how we think of that legacy of, as being. Mm-hmm.
0: Well... Uh, as we like, as we recently developed a habit of in terms of introducing all of our stories, uh, Sarah, do you have a few one-star reviews or other segments for us to start us off with? I,
1: <laughs> I do. Um, it this is a weird one. It is actually again not unlike my discussion of cuisine de memoir that we did last week, where there was a short story collection where most of the reviews were particularly positive, and. Um, there were a few reviews that were sort of positing the collection itself as a mixed bag. So, uh, there were a couple of people who, who put this compilation, Damned If I Do, as somewhat uneven, which I think is fair for any short story collection. Um, but it was difficult for me because every time someone did that, they specifically pointed out this story as well. This is the shining star <laughs> in this collection, and I'm like, "Fuck!" What? I was going to say,
2: Goodreads has this as yeah. a, at a 4.42, which yeah, I mean, no, they're all sort of Goodreads. four no.
1: stars and above for the yeah. for the compilation itself, right? Um, I do have one review which I thought was sort of funny uh, for the The compendium, Damned if I do, from Amazon <laughs> that started out with a title that says some say some might say it is cool slash artsy, but I thought it was boring, okay, so much hoopla about this book, mostly weird short stories that go nowhere, some might say it's cool artsy, I thought it was boring, uh which is not only repetitive but also sort of ridiculous, so anyway i didn't get much I didn't get very far on the particular reviews of this novel. So I I tried to do a, <laughs> a little bit of a sideways slant on this because one of the things that becomes particularly um, thematic within this story is the idea of the song Dixie, mm-hmm. which I am sure that we will talk about. And mm-hmm. in all of its many issues... But I decided while I was at work today to just see if, like, maybe I could find some sort of just, like, generic review site of Dixie as a song, which is, like, sort of ridiculous because it's a Confederate song, and it is specifically from the 1850s in the South. So I don't know what mm-hmm. reviews I thought I was going to get, but I did happen, BJ, to a, a segment that you introduced a couple of episodes ago to a, a news item. Mm-hmm. related to said story um and this is you know it's it's a little bit out of date it is from 2018 and it is from the fourth of july celebrations that might have been going on in in 2018 uh but there is a story a story uh from clark clarkstown which i don't know what clarkstown it's i don't know what state that's from um but there were fourth of july celebrations that were like fairly standard celebrations where the, the town and the municipal government had asked a high school band to uh, play the music for said celebrations. The, the parade, the gathering afterwards, there were fireworks going on, et cetera, et cetera. Well, some lowly Parks and Rec employee had um, picked out the musical compilation that was going to be played by said high school orchestra at this celebration and it included a selection from Dixie in 2018 in the south in a municipal celebration and there was just rioting in the streets and so um i think that we are going to get into kind of what Dixie is but when you begin with the idea of I wish I was in the land of cotton Mm -hmm. in the south in a sort of government sanctioned celebration I think you're in for a little bit of trouble yeah yeah, that sort of
2: reminds me of there are places in the south that have field trips to plantations mm -hmm. um, (laughs) with their students and it can not go over well as you might guess um yeah it's kind of like while it is history maybe having the students pick cotton is not the best way to learn about it right
1: well and and there are a number of i'm sorry spencer go ahead no go ahead no please well i was just going to say that there are a number of plantations that have these kind of historical experiences attached to them um Mm -hmm. that just completely obviate the experiences of black americans and slaves on those plantations right and so you get this sort of gone with the wind-esque understanding of what a quote-unquote plantation means and that is entirely divorced from a real life experience of what plantation life is
0: right I remember there's a, I believe a plantation that's outside of Charleston that's recently started to focus on the experience of the slaves occurring at the plantation during its history and how much is that that's important for the history that's been wiped away. And they've talked about how many of the people that come to the plantation don't want to hear that and assume that the tour guide is going off script to tell them that. Mm. Like the tour guides have been doing it, have talked about how the amount of complaints that they get have just gone up by several factors as a result of this. Uh, from people just saying that, A, it's made up, B, this isn't the history that they paid for to hear. So, yeah, it's proven controversial for those that have tried to go outside the uh, usual plantation script. Yeah. Uh. But in terms of this, the song Dixie itself, it's just one of those fascinating cultural touchstones of where no aspect of it is okay or has ever been okay. Yeah. I mean, it it became the anthem of the Confederacy, and that's got its own issues. But do you guys know where it started before that? Because no. it's older than the Confederacy. It is a minstrel song. It came out of blackface min, uh, minstrel yes. shows. Um, as a matter of fact, it was invented by I believe the creator of the song was Dan Emmett, who was the guy who created the very first blackface minstrel show. So it's got its own history oh, of issues boy. associated, going even before the Confederacy began.
1: And so, did you all d- d- look up the lyrics before no. we started uh, this recording? I
0: sadly didn't need to. I kind of heard it a lot growing <laughs> up.
1: Well, so but a I... couple of things that I just wanted to point out about it is that, like, in the <laughs> in the known verses, the, the the regularly used verses, let's say of it, right, you have a myriad of cultural nonsense that came out of them, um, Mm -hmm. including this idea of, quote, I'll take my stand, Mm -hmm. which was taken up by the Southern agrarians, um, who, God help me, came from my alma mater um, and came out of and were based at Vanderbilt, because of course they were, and took this sort of conservative view against HL Mencken and staked this claim of sort of agrarian tradition and the old South and this sort of based on a Southern identity and all kinds of just nonsense that they came up with, but that their manifesto takes its title from the song Dixie, which sure. Now there are a number of different like reappropriations getting to kind of this story that are happening around the idea of Dixie. Uh, for example, there are a number. One of the sort of seminal books on what how we think about a sort of global South as opposed to a sort of U.S. South is called *Look Away*, which comes specifically from Dixie, and like that's kind of that's kind of cool, and it's shifting sort of the global Southern discourse. Um, But the alternative other verses of Dixie are particularly interesting to me. Because we get into, like, violent misogyny and, like, food criticism. So, you know, there's something for everybody involved in Dixie. (laughs) Yeah,
2: I I feel like there are songs like that that... And I'm sure this is one of them where everybody sort of has their own sets of lyrics because it's one of those catchy tunes and things like that. Yeah. That there are many other r- things to it and it's, you know, and given the nature of the song and the lyrics that are in it, it's sort of whatever terrible things are inherent to you and the people around you get put in it. Um mm-hmm.
0: Like, I I first heard the song The Yellow Rose of Texas on Rocco's Modern Life and then in Later Life looked at the lyrics and was rather shocked and appalled to hear what the (laughs) full song is.
2: Yeah. Um, Um. I was going to say, like, there are a lot of sea shanties that in some ways I would liken this to where there are versions that people know that are less disturbing, um, Mm -hmm. but, you know, those are I would say probably less culturally insensitive for the most part but but very very disturbing and in, in the lyrics that are sort of more commonly used um, compared to the popularized tunes of them and and I presume that a lot of these songs have sort of similar things in more modern day culture though they probably shouldn't
1: yeah, well, I mean I think that um, it kind of to that point bJ you can certainly think about the 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 cultural touchstones and the the folk songs that someone like Dolly Parton was drawing on, for example, um, yep. and she turned them into kind of feminist anthems in mm-hmm. a way. Um, although she was dealing with a very like a hugely misogynistic understanding of um, Appalachian and by extension, like traditional English Irish folk tune
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, repertoire. Yeah. But she sh- she sort of shifted those to to have these kind of feminist overtones to a deeply misogynistic source material. Um, I was say that's a
2: very good segue into our actual story. <laughs>
1: Back to our actual story. Yes. Um, can I say one more thing about Dixie, though? Of course, please. Um, and it's not about the song Dixie, except that that is itself a segue to my cocktail for the night, uh, which is a Whistling Dixie. Or a Whiskey Dixie, um, which is terrible. There's other
2: connotations to it. (laughs) Uh, Yes, it does. Yes, it does. (laughs)
1: Um, So it is, we will, I think, post pictures of it. It is a very pretty cocktail, not intentionally so, because I bought the wrong creme de menthe. Um, But it it is bourbon and creme de menthe and triple sec and bitters shaken and poured into a glass. And it's its a weird sort of cocktail because in some ways, like in just the description of it, it is somewhat reminiscent of, of a mint julep because you have that mintiness, you have the sort of bourbon and the whiskey. Um, I was going to ask you about that because it did sound vaguely
2: similar and I think you like those.
1: I like those better than this. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what I will say about this is I specifically bought Triple Sec and menthe for this cocktail, and I still have no idea what Triple Sec tastes like because menthe is all I taste. And it is, it is a particularly medicinal tasting cocktail without the benefits of NyQuil.
2: Yeah. I, so it's an interesting combination because... Um, my recollection is that triple sec is orange flavored and orange and mint usually aren't a combination that most people would see. The
1: tooth, the toothpaste and orange juice combination yes. is well known.
2: Oh. Yes. Um, so.
1: But the, the orange gets entirely overpowered by the creme de main. um, as does the whiskey, quite
2: frankly. I feel it's... like you, you need to change the, uh, proportions. I and, think and the ratios in the in yeah. the
1: recipes that I was was reading were wrong, um, but I'm also not. I am unconvinced that I like the taste of creme de menthe enough hmm. to care.
2: Fair enough. Um, I'm sure we can find some other use for it um, in the future, but sure, in very um, small quantities. I thoroughly appreciate your. Um, Sacrifices for, for this podcast. Sure. Yeah. yeah.
0: After after what six weeks of success, it's nice to see you return to form for what, how you originally started this podcast. <laughs> off. very very bad trip. I, I
1: had a I had a strong run, um, and this is g- gross. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> had to happen eventually. Yeah. Well, um, so well, while you enjoy sipping that drink. <laughs> uh, <laughs> For our story this week, uh, shall, we, shall, we, shall we do a plot overview? I feel like we can do the plot overview fairly quickly yep. for this one. It's yes, a little bit then longer going than
2: uh, Sheehan names them, but not by a lot.
0: Yeah. I mean, the story takes place around Columbia, South Carolina, with a main character by the name of Daniel Barclay, who is seemingly like a relatively recently graduated student who has his own resources, so he doesn't have to work, and has his degree, but hasn't really done with it, anything with it, and mostly just spends most of his time playing jazz at a local bar outside the university, which... Uh, entertains a fair amount of university students. And our story pretty much effectively begins one night when he's playing, when some rowdy frat boys in the back start demanding that he, a black man, play Dixie on stage for them. And a thought occurs to him that wraps him up and really drives his decision-making and his new philosophy for much of the rest of the story, about to what degree he can take something, which is very much a racist anthem, and make it his, and effectively defeat the motivations by which it is used as a racist anthem. And the first example of that is the song Dixie, which he performs on stage to the audience, uh, to their initial confusion and then later celebration, as the frat boys leave in confusion and disgust, and everyone else congratulates him on what he did and how it felt right to have him play it in his own way and his own time. And... The story pretty much goes from there, as he suddenly starts really finding a purpose in life to take various racist emblems, various racist causes, and subvert them, to make them as if they are elements of his own liberation and celebration and black power and many other concepts, and thereby subvert and defeat them. Essentially, using cultural appropriation as a weapon against elements that otherwise would seek to oppress. So there's
2: an anecdote sort of right after this about
0: um, him buying a truck. Yeah, the truck is the second example yeah. with respect to the... Uh, he refers to it as the Confederate flag, but I'm presuming it's the uh, battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia, the classic Confederate flag image. Thank you, Spencer. It, that is
1: a deep yeah. dive, Spencer, that I'm not sure any of a, us would have felt <laughs> the need to go the, on.
0: <laughs> as the one Southerner on this podcast, a lot of this resonates well.
2: Um, and so basically he... Um, his friend slash girlfriend, I'm not super clear on their relationship. Um, is there, She's talking about painting her nails, and he sort of decides, as they're checking out in a grocery store, that he wants to buy a truck, and mm-hmm. he finds out that this truck has the Confederate flag on, on the window, and the uh, people that are selling it you know say you know i'm happy to work with you on the price he's like oh no 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 i'll pay the price and they're like well you know we're happy to take off this sticker you know it should come right off he's like no i want the sticker and you know i'll even i'll pay you to deliver it to me which they're clearly uncomfortable uh, with
1: just flabbergasted
0: yeah above asking price yes to get them to deliver it to his front door and before they arrive he tells this uh she doesn't she doesn't live with him i think she's just his friend that happens think, to be yeah, by that yeah that these guys are coming you need to see what it's about to happen yeah um and
2: basically they well i mean i guess i feel like that story that that part in and of itself is not that interesting but he but he's just like all right well yes you know that's exactly what i want no keep the sticker on you know it's it's i'm taking it back
1: And I feel like one of the, one of the most interesting parts for me in, in this whole exchange is the fact that he, Daniel called this couple to indicate his interest in this truck Mm -hmm. and kind of worked out the whole deal. And once he got there, he overheard this conversation within the house because the door was not latched properly, where and I don't remember which of the couple it was to the other, but said essentially, like, well, I couldn't tell on the phone in reference to him being black. Yep. Um, And there is is some more machinations, there are some more machinations regarding that kind of misunderstanding when they drop this truck off. Yeah.
0: Um, Well, when they uh, drop off this truck, the... Main thing he intentionally tells them is that, well, they still are utterly confused why they're there and why he wants this truck. And he invents on the fly a variety of pretty poor excuses for why he needs this truck to pick up groceries and books and things. Um, but when they ask him again about, are you sure you... They, I think they even straight up ask him that, uh, well, they're ask him or suggest, Do you want, are you sure you don't want to take down the flag? But he says, no, no, no it was really lucky for me to find a truck at this price with a black power flag in the back of it. And confusion reigns. As they have no idea what he's talking about or why he's doing it. Yep. And,
2: and they're like, oh, okay, I'm confused. And it's like, oh, no, didn't you know? This, this, this is what it is. Um, and so he sort of keeps on about basically saying, I'm gonna take it back. You know? This is, this is my thing now. And so the next little vignette is a a run in with some good old boys um, and he, he sticks to his guns and basically there's some other uh, young black men that show up to sort of have his back, I would say. Um, and he basically says, you know, this is our flag, this is black power and, and says, you know, Isn't that right? And they go along with it. And so he is taking back the, the flag or taking the flag and reappropriating it. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. And this continues in terms of his um, continued time playing at various bars, playing jazz of where Dixie now becomes his go-to that he plays at each of these bars with people again, surprised and confused, but then it really becoming the norm of where it's become something they almost expect for him as part of his performances. Um, with really the repeated motif and repeated line of look away, look away, look away, that seems to really resonate with him about what this song now means and what he's built into it. And really now that the vignettes are done, we kind of jump ahead as what he's started in terms of these various racist emblems, racist touchstones. This uh, wholesale appropriation of them becomes very much widespread to the point that throughout Columbia, South Carolina, they now become the norm of black people who are driving around with the battle flag and the Army of Northern Virginia on the back of their trucks. That they're wearing rebel flag icons on their blazers. It's now a very much black cultural event. Black family reunions and picnics and Yeah. A... To the point that in an incredibly symbolic moment, the Confederate flag that was until relatively recently flying over the South Carolina capital is taken down because it no longer has the power that it 's put up there for, and the story ends again with the repeated look away, look away, look away" from the song and yeah, this is a story that we can summarize real quick, but I have a feeling that we're all going to want to talk about a hell of a lot of the themes for a lot longer,
1: yeah, yeah, I think this is a this is a complicated little story um. Especially in terms of of our 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 recent national discussions about sort of monuments and what those mean and and what the correct action in regards to those are right
2: mm-hmm yeah
1: um and i I would like to start with maybe a question that is that is not appropriate to start with, but um I am interested, Spencer, because you just mentioned. Um, this kind of refrain of the story. What do you think he means by repeatedly invoking this line from Dixie, look away, look away, look away?
0: When he originally did it, I almost thought it was a conscious gesture of looking away from what the song represented, looking away from those negative aspects of history, looking away. For so many people that just reference these icons, they don't really think about the abusive elements that are tied into their history, about that when they're put forward as part of, you know, it's our culture, it's our tradition, it's our history. There's a conscious act of obscuring and doing the, you know, lost cause element of analyzing your own past associated with them. So that was my initial thought, but I didn't really dig deeper into about it. Did, did you have any ideas about what it was?
1: Um, I mean, I think I, I do, potentially, but BJ, do you have do you have thoughts?
2: Um... A little bit. I guess the the look away from me, I feel like it changed mm-hmm. um, to the, um, I guess, kind of the, the started out in the sense of, like, I'm just not going to pay attention to the origin to it, and mm-hmm. then the, I guess, it, it almost took the opposite meaning to me. It's just, like, I'm going to find things that are meant to be oppressive, and... Mm-hmm take them as mine and so mm. I'm going to force basically the white bigots to look away from, from the things that they used to look towards to try and oppress me and my people and take those as ours
1: yeah that's interesting I think um, for me I think it's in, informed a little bit by the the tradition of expanding what the South means to look towards, um, kind of other countries and traditions that are traditionally, or that are, that are commonly understood as the South. But if we take it back to sort of like the American context and particularly the Black American context, I think for me, it looked towards this, or it it spoke specifically towards this idea of, um we as black americans are going to look toward look away from the dominant cultural narrative of american history
0: mm-hmm. which
1: has this sort of progressive bent which has this ideological striving bent that has historically disenfranchised black americans and by looking away from that narrative towards something else even if it were a a kind of um, historically oppressive history, but like a real history, as opposed mm-hmm. to this sort of mythologized history, then there, there's something there's something real there. There's something tangible there that we can we can look away from um, this kind of story that is told about America.
2: Yeah. To and something mm-hmm. else. I would get, I would say, and to your point, the background that he comes from is the sort of different segment of a a black population i yeah. would presume and it's a there is a segment that is off that that is very well educated and mm-hmm. has a very different experience and maybe that's also what he's looking away from and so yeah that's it, an it, interesting point yeah. it talks about how he graduated from brown a mm-hmm. right. An institution in the north that is anything but the south um
0: ivy league of ivy league
2: yes he he drives a you know very sort of old white person's car i you know i don't know exactly when this is uh written to be but presumably you know not when when this car would have come out the jensen interceptor which is very much sort of of the like british touring car Mm -hmm. genre um he's and he he is is,
1: from sort of inherited wealth
2: right he has family Mm -hmm. money um Mm -hmm. just sort of a very different part of the population and and it was actually it sort of reminded me of um a roommate that i had in college um uh who's I think grandmother was the mayor of uh, the city that he was from and like all of his family were in like local politics and it was just a very interesting experience being in Newark, New Jersey and having a lot of other classmates and, and people that I associated with that were of a very different segment of a black population, Mm -hmm. Um, and he was sort of on the complete opposite end of, um, I don't know how familiar you are with New Jersey, but like Cherry Hill area, Um, you're familiar with Bethesda, so sort of more like Bethesda area of Maryland, um, and I'm sure there are some parts of Charlotte that I could probably reference Spencer that would make sense to you, but I don't know them um, and just how like I would joke that he was kind of like the whitest person in our suite, he definitely wasn't, but like the the upbringing and the attitude that he had about certain things was very different than a lot of the other students that that we that I got to interact with,
1: mm-hmm. and I
2: feel like that's the background of this character, which is just so incredibly not black southern and so he's looking away from his own upbringing and his own experience to what he's living at
0: there there may be a certain implication that he actually when he went to university he moved away from home intending to leave the south behind in Mm -hmm. some ways but his mother's death and returning to deal with that and now having her property as a result may have drug him back in in a way he didn't even ever want
1: yeah i think that's true i also think that you know, the the unspoken truth of this this story that we get hints of, particularly in the beginning of the story, when he is playing in this band with sort of southern black old timers, right, is mm-hmm. that he is disconnected from them in a certain mm-hmm. way that in the way that you were describing it, BJ, and I think in ways that bear out in the story is related to class, but is, is a little bit unexplored in this story the idea of class underpins the ability, his ability to take the actions that he takes
2: mm-hmm. but
1: the potential ramifications of him not being in a sort of upper middle class black family are not explored right these are not yeah. necessi- these are not actions that a working class black man could take in yeah. the south mm-hmm. and reasonably be able to sort of continue in his way of life.
0: Yeah. I and mean, it's true for a lot of um, cultural movements that have analyzed and looked at issues of class or racial oppression that a lot of the original leaders of that mo- those movements were decidedly middle class philosophers. Mm-hmm. Um, even like the Harlem Renaissance, people like Booker T. Washington were very well-educated middle class individuals that became one of the lead writers discussing issues of oppression among the whole people. Mm-hmm. Because they were in a position to have that education, to have the resources to be able to do that in a way that others weren't. Mm-hmm. Same is true for, like, you know, the original philosophers about communism things. They were relatively do people in the bourgeoisie that were talking about how everyone else needed to overthrow the bourgeoisie. It's sure. an interesting concept with yeah. respect to class. I was going
2: to yeah, say, no. the Go
1: ahead,
2: one other thing that um, I feel like is pertinent to this discussion is is the midnight in the garden of good and evil like the perspectives that we get and the people that we get to talk to and just the the segment of society that we see i mean we do see some other glimpses of of a a more black southern experience but we mostly see the very upper echelon of that experience and not probably a more common one.
1: Yeah, BJ, it's interesting because I had in my notes correlations to Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, right? Because we <laughs> yeah. are dealing with a a sort of a realism-based story mm-hmm. around race relations in the South um, yeah. that have... Vestiges of class relations in them, and maybe you could say kind of the opposite proportion for midnight in the garden of garden of good and evil you 're really dealing with class proportions that have vestiges of race relations in them mm-hmm. um but it is it is interesting in that respect in who we see, the voices that we get, and the who we do not see and the voices that we don 't get right yeah and Kind of related to this conversation about who percival everett is and what he does he is always always interested in the not there in the erasure that is happening in a given story in the silent absence that is sort of felt around the edges of a story yeah and i think we get a very clearly defined individual story in um in appropriation of cultures But I think that there are so many, so many edges in this story, that are purposefully unexplored, Mm
2: -hmm. in the sort of well,
1: what happens if? Yeah, I think ellipses.
2: (laughs) Right, but I, I also think that there's the, if this were another story, the people that he was buying the truck from would be more overtly racist or, or something. But for the most part, these. Their their racism is casual, but...
1: (laughs) They're, like, weirdly good people, racists.
2: Right, and, uh, (laughs) like, I feel like this is the... These are boring people that are essentially, like, they grew up around racism, so it's kind of, like, what they know, but it's like, oh, well, now that we're dealing with a black person, like, oh, yeah, like, what this this sticker shouldn't be on the truck like why do we have this here this doesn't make any sense like this is yeah. weird we can totally right. take that off for you like and you know we're we're happy to like come down on the price like you know we can work with you like we need to sell the the truck and if you want it like we're ha- like we're happy to do this and it's like oh well he didn't sound black but like that's not going to prevent us from selling the truck to him like that that'd be crazy and so like this is the I feel like this is sort of, and I guess I don't know, but I feel like this is a, this is a story that isn't often talked about because it's sort of not as interesting, but also way more fascinating because it's more real. It reads Mm -hmm. real. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's also probably way more common, too, mm-hmm. that it's much more easy to adapt certain things as part of your day-to-day life without questioning them. It's just like, you know, I'm in a rural southern setting. Several of my neighbors have Confederate flags. I'd like to blend in. Sure, there's one in the back of my truck. My dad had one. It's just part of my background. Without ever really thinking about what it represents to people that aren't you, uh, until it's directly confronted in front of you and they're wanting to buy it from you.
1: Well, and I think that it kind of in this I think extraordinary description of the scene where daniel is is driving through the neighborhood to get to the house of the people who are selling the truck. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. describes the like continued and I would still say sort of casual or ambient hostility of everyone else around the situation until he gets to the people who are who are selling the truck who have who are who maybe have these kind of Potential for underlying questions to reach them but are also involved in like a very clear capitalist transaction Mm -hmm. and at that point say well I don't know I don't really care who you are you're giving me money oh wait you're giving me maybe more money than I anticipated getting from you great Mm -hmm. but you around that whatever their motivation is you still get these glimpses and vestiges of the people working on the car who are staring, who are staring, who mm-hmm. are uncomfortable the with the situation. You get—I I, I don't remember exactly what all of the examples are—but you get this sort of like feeling of oh, they're fluttering curtains around um, as people yeah. try to peer out of them. That, right. yeah.
0: I, I love like the one. Uh, there's, there's one that he says a woman in a house across the street watched from her porch, safe inside the chain link fence around yes. her yard. Yes that there's definitely an element that he's in some way violating their space by even, by, his, by even his presence. There's not necessarily overt hostility, but there's an undercurrent of an outsider has arrived. Mm-hmm. One one of the things I love, too, is that um, the main character, again, the story's like six pages long, but the, the experience the main character goes through the first night after he plays Dixie is such an interesting affirmation of anger uh, in terms of how it is described. Yeah. Of where... I mean, I'll just read part of it, but uh, at 23, his anger was fresh and typical, and so was his ease with it, the way it could be forgotten for chunks at a time until something like that night with the white frat boys or simply a flashing blue light in the rearview mirror brought it all back. He liked that song, wanted to play it again, and knew that he would. It's... this character does such a good job of characterizing of of evoking the emotions of characters in such a limited setting. I mean... For a story that is only seven pages long, there is so much density here. I and mean, we joked about the story was a breeze to read through, but it is really a thunderstorm in terms of the effect that it has as it goes through.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's it's interesting because it's interesting that you bring up, Spencer, the the anger that is evident in this story. Um, and this the story was written, or at least first published, I think, in 2010, which is a a slightly different context than we are living in now um, in the sort of macro scale, although I think the lived experience is is probably very similar mm-hmm. um, and as we frequently say, this is not a political podcast, but I do think that the this exploration of who is allowed to feel anger and what anger is valid in a community is really interesting um and this Mm -hmm. reclamation of or at least maybe not reclamation because i don't think we necessarily get a reclamation of anger in this story although we get a reclamation of other things but this acknowledgement of legitimate anger in an african-american character is really powerful to me Mm
0: mm-hmm it's something that we've struggled with for a long time about what way you can express, what way you can respond to injustice in a way that society will tolerate. That, I mean, you look at a character like Malcolm X of where he's been for years, certainly at the time and for decades after, he was an incredibly controversial figure because he advocated a certain degree of militancy. Not even in a way like I'm actively going to threaten you, just that. I will fight to defend myself. Mm -hmm. And that even the idea that he would use violence to protect himself was an incredibly controversial thing that ostracized him from the broader uh, black rights movement. That that wasn't going to be acceptable to society. That someone would be willing to fight to protect themselves against injustice. It's, yeah, we really struggle with the idea that certain minority groups particularly black people are allowed to feel anger for what they go through much less express it through their actions Mm
2: -hmm. and it's sort of one of those things that again you know we're sort of it's not something that 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 we've really experienced but i feel like they're that the author does such a good job of how they how the story is written so that even if you haven't experienced these things you can start to understand at least some of what's going on i mean clearly not like everything surrounding this but the what the main character feels and how he how his thought processes work and how um, his friend sarah talks to him about what he's doing starts to give you a sense of Of the casual injustices and and how somebody how people respond to them
1: and i think kind of to that point bj like one of the things we haven't talked about in relation to this story is just how how funny it is um and the the kind of undercutting of the gross injustice of the things that our ma- our main character is dealing with is the casual humor with which he faces these every day injustices.
0: Yeah. Right. Um, and, and responds to them here by his actions. I mean, yeah. this is a conscious act of satire that he's engaging in right now. He's yep. essentially mocking them by doing this. He's making fun of what is so important to them. Um, and him doing this is not new that this is done by a variety of writers or comics in terms of confronting elements of oppression in the world. And it's controversial when they do it. I mean, one of the examples I love is I love the works of Mel Brooks, Mm -hmm. uh, who loves to address various oppressive groups, particularly against the Jewish community, in his works. He's made fun of the uh, Spanish Inquisition. He's consistently poked fun at the Nazis. Yep. Um, I mean,
2: he did the same thing with... uh... Racism
0: and, yeah, and blazing, blazing
2: saddles. saddles. And there was a fascinating interview, um, that they did with some of the actors. They didn't get everybody, I think mostly because, uh, it was done in like the, uh, like late two thousands or something like that. But, um, one of the cowboys, like the, one of the sort of sidekick cowboys, not slim Pickens. um, was looking at the script where they they Cleavon little uh black bart or mm-hmm. or the the sheriff they call him the n-word and he basically looked at the script and was like i'm not doing that there, like there's no way i'm doing that and like i i'm not comfortable doing this and and Cleavon little ba- basically looked at him and said well this is in the script this is this is a piece of work and it's poking fun at racists. Right. And look, like if, if I thought you would ever in your life call me that, I would knock you out. Mm-mm. But I know that's not the case. And so I'm okay with you saying it in this context.
0: And Mel Brooks's philosophy has always been that for these things, these oppressive forces, these evil forces in the world, the be- one of the best ways you can confront them is mock them is to point out how ludicrous and funny and silly they are and undermine them for that. Because the only way these kind of despotic forces can continue to persist is through their pride in themselves, their trumped-up view of what they (laughs) represent and how powerful it is through this imagery, through these words, whatever else. And if you can just highlight just what utter fallacy it is, you can show the rot that it represents and have it just collapse before you. Now... That's his philosophy. And it seems to me what the author is in some ways representing with this story, too, that by embracing this, by making fun of it, by pointing out, this, by responding with satire to these oppressive forces, we can effectively undermine their motivations for continuing them by making them less cool or less effective. Yep. And yeah. I was,
2: we were talking previous to this, and I brought up Trevor Noah in his stand-up yep. and how... Mm-hmm he basically one of the ways that he wanted to deal with certain racist things is send them to south africa like this the racist things in south africa are completely different so we'll just have a swap you know the the people in south africa can be as racist as they want to the to the blacks in in america and the 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 people in America that want to be racist can go over to South Africa because they don't have any shared cultural oppression. And so the things that people do in America to oppress black people, like have no history. And so like, you can say what you want and it just sounds funny because there's no, there isn't that same cultural heritage. Um, And he just did a, I don't know, is very funny way of looking at it
0: now it's worth noting that this particular philosophy for confronting these forces is very controversial um, there are a lot of people including a lot of new movements that have been attacking these kind of uh, putting these elements for, uh, for, uh, very much in front Nazi imagery race ra- racist terms whatever else into comedy as being ultimately unsuccessful in their objectives because they 're aiding in the persistence of these racist um, despotic oppressive terms uh, imagery whatever else consciousness. And-
1: yeah and we the- we 've talked about this in in other contexts on this this very podcast about sort of how Germany in the past has been particularly successful in um, quashing some of some of these views, whereas the united states has- Notably, not been, um, but whether that continues to persist is in question.
0: Yeah, right. And and there's some questions about the success of the German method yes, of doing, exactly. it, doing it too. Exactly. Particularly in recent years. Yes. But, yeah, it, um, but it's an interesting lo- line of debate. Of where a lot of is driven by some of these um, uh, critics of this method of satire have point have argued that a you're aiding the persistence of this imagery in modern culture, but b It's assuming that everyone's going to understand what you're doing. Yeah. And that to what degree can you assume that individuals that hold these racist, oppressive, despotic, whatever views are going to get your joke and understand that you're making fun of them? Or are they just going to celebrate that, oh, there's the image I like in that?
1: Yeah. Well, and I would say even more... um even the the even more sort of powerful valence of that question is are the people who are your allies going to understand right. that you are Which, that you are participating in this satire that what you are participating in is satire
2: right and and i think that's sort of where the who can make the jokes comes yeah. in yeah um and and i i think that there is some validity to it. I know that there are some proponents and, and I have difficulty on where I fall on this. And it's just like, so who gets to make the jokes and who gets to, to say that this is satire? And like, where does that line fall? And I think that there is, that there is something to be said to, you know, be it art or some, something, some message that somebody has I don't know that the way to go about things is to say, okay, so who's the dumbest person that can get access to this and what are they going to think of it as the way <laughs> to judge something that you want to put out there? Right. Because, I, I don't know, I just, I, I feel like that that's a, a very sad way to go about your society and say, all right, well, how how can people twist this and I'm not going to do anything to make sure that they can't do that
0: right there's also the point too that's been raised as well that there are some things that are too important or too dark or too painful to ever be made fun of that they should be effect- remembered for how horrible they are and kept in that way otherwise they're in some way diluted in terms of what they actually represented to the people who live through them who have to deal with them um, that things like the Holocaust shouldn't ever be made the butt of a joke or discussed in satire or made light of in terms of describing what was done because even if it undermines movements now, it's diluting the cultural effect that had on the people that have had to endure both it now, both it then and it now. Um, it's a lot of really interesting questions that go into play when you discuss this kind of subversion or cultural per- appropriation of these oppressive forces because doing so well it has no certain result
2: yeah and i i think that there are very interesting discussions to get into that area and they are they're very complicated um maybe a little bit more complicated than our you know book club literary (laughs) podcast um has um but i mean i sort of the. One of the things that I want to say on that, and then I feel like I should turn it over to you, Sarah, since we've been talking a lot, um, is that people aren't dumb. Like, at you know, yeah. at some point, like, people can make jokes, and like, at some point, you'll know if they're jokes, and you know if they're not, um, and if you just assume that everybody's dumb, there are problems there, and then there's just the everybody assuming it's like, well, like, you can't joke about it, and it's like, well... There were plenty of Holocaust survivors that did joke about it because that's how they coped with it, and Mm -hmm. it's one of the things where it's just a, you know, that's how people talk about it, that's how people deal with it, and there are ways of talking about things that humor allows you to do that Mm -hmm. you might not otherwise, Mm -hmm. and there are serious conversations that you can have with it, but to have them all be serious is draining. Sure. Um, I and mean, to,
0: parap- to paraphrase Mel Brooks, why do you think there are so many Jewish comics? Yeah, and, that's one of the ways you deal with
2: this, right? And it it just you know you bring up the Holocaust, and it reminds me of one of those you know jokes where where it's just you know a lot of the jokes are in some ways self deprecating, and in some ways bring up serious issues, but in a way that you can talk about it and address it if it needs talking about and addressing. And I think that this story does that in a way that makes things more comfortable to be able to address and, and opens up a dialogue rather than closing it off, which I think that there are many forces in modern culture that are, you haven't experienced it so you can't talk about it, rather than the Let's talk about it or, you know, let me include you in a way that's lighthearted so we can get a discussion going and proceed Mm -hmm. from there. And I appreciate this a lot more.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, what's interesting specifically about this story to me in kind of in relation to, but a bit tangential to what you're talking about BJ is the gestures that it makes towards not just the discussion around a sort of sensitive issue or traumatic period in history, et cetera, et cetera, but the the physical glorification and manifestation that happens around that. Um mm-hmm. which I think is a slightly a slightly different conversation. Um we have recently been having it in the United States, uh a fair amount, but this idea of the specific, not the, not the idea of, of talking about the experiences or, or the idea of including humor in, in the way that we process experiences, but the understanding of what it means to have a confederate flag decal on a truck or to have robert Mm -hmm. e lee's horse's ass staring at you when you leave your apartment in the morning or you know what or to have the confederate flag on top of on top of your state capitol like this this story is interesting because it bridges it in some ways bridges the gap between the idea of the sort of storytelling that we do or the conversations that we are willing to have around an experience or event and the um memorialization that happens around it although i mm-hmm. it doesn't quite it it's a little like one of my one of my quibbles with the story which is a story that i otherwise love is that it doesn't necessarily go far enough into exploring the difference between the conversation around events and the memorialization mm-hmm. and physical manifestations of a glorification of those events. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I Well, I was going to say, I feel like the
2: end is sort of the perfect wrap up of what those, the two sides of, of like what the story does mm-hmm. really well and what it sort of touches on. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I guess one of the reasons that i like it and i it requires the reader to know a lot and yes, i appreciate that mm-hmm. and i guess like if i didn't know certain things like gun control basically came out of a republican being scared of the black panthers yeah and it that did yeah and that essentially the reaction In this story of the South Carolina government saying like, oh, well, like, you know, the the black population has decided that this is their thing. So we're going to discard it immediately is just such a perfect response because that's a narrative that has played out, essentially. Mm hmm. Um, and, and so what I'm referring to is basically a bunch of Black Panthers showed up to the state capital of California when Ronald Reagan was governor and as a protest to police brutality, among many other things. Um, and this basically prompted California, spurred on by Ronald Reagan, to pass very strict gun control laws that were not a thing of the country before that and i you know i feel like this is sort of like the opposite end of the taking down of the confederate flag hmm.
0: one other aspect of the story that resonated well with me is that the fact that this story is all taking place inside of a college town um
2: charleston is columbia oh it's columbia yes
1: okay for some <laughs> reason <laughs> charleston I read... is not a college yeah. town but columbia no,
0: but Col- columbia usc's home home it definitely is yeah. i also am amused that um that the author, Professor is the uh, is a professor. I think he's an English professor over at the other USC. So, yes. I wonder whether yeah. it's an USC. in some ways, <laughs> yeah. But it, we it was so interesting being in two. I went to two different uh, Southern college towns in um, Chapel Hill and at uh, Charlottesville. And it's such an interesting kind of cultural mindset that goes into all these communities, of where there's almost this assumption that being a college town, being in some ways a liberal bastion, that you are removed and isolated from a lot of those things, from the various other cultural forces of the various outside racism or the various historical issues that go into it. And then, particularly over the last few years, there's been an active realization that, no, they're very much steeped in it too, that there's no removal from this, that a lot of the icons that are very much glittering our campuses all have their own history and their own elements and their own connotations that conversations need to have about. It's just assumption that, you know, this is a removed setting for academic learning, where it's acceptance and there's no issues attached to it, is just fundamentally false. And so I appreciate that the setting in this story, the very beginnings of this, is that it's happening at USC, and it begins with some drunk frat students bringing up these issues to the forefront. Mm -hmm. Um, It really mirrors a lot of what I saw at UNC and um, UVA as I was going through school there, where these conversations really finally started to happen about no, there's a lot of conversations that we've just been actively avoiding with the assumption that we weren't really part of them.
2: Yeah. It, they're very, so UNC is a very different institution than, um, either, well, either of the, th- or the three other, insti- four, I guess, other institutions that I've been at in terms of like culture and history and, um, sort of feelings about itself. Um, and it. I just there are many reasons that i like unc chapel hill um but the feel of it as a place in the south is very distinct from a lot of northern institutions and Mm -hmm. or california institutions which have nothing to do with anything um and yeah the south is just different um and i feel like every time that i've told that to people that i grew up with in maryland or people that I, you know, family in New York or, or whomever else. They're just like, like, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. Um, to a certain extent. And it's just like, it just is like, I it, it's hard yeah. to, to talk about it unless you've been there. And I feel like this, this story starts to, and capture some of it.
1: It's, it's both, it's, it's an interesting mixture of, there is a particular way of, of talking about history that obfuscates a lot of things. Yeah. I was going to say Sarah's. Um, but there's like you're... also yeah, go ahead.
2: Uh, you're very much not from the South. Like did no, you No, but
1: I also like very much got ensconced in UNC history and and what it is and the storytelling about it because I wor- I worked at UNC visitor center for for quite a while and sort of got into the storytelling aspect of it. And so uh, my my impression is that like an institution like UNC is is both actively a part of the kind of obfuscating of historical facts (laughs) um in the (laughs) way and, and historical baggage in the way in the way that we think about the south but i also think that the like the history of unc for all of its faults and foibles and misstarts or the history of a place like unc in those same aspects also has a particular history of grappling with these isu- issues right. that institutions in the North have never had to deal with.
0: Yeah. And I think that's one of the unique advantages Southern universities have yeah. is that they're primarily situated to have these conversations in a way that no one else really can. Yes. They're the meeting point. They are the cultural, you know, I was gonna say miasma but that's not the word I'm really going for. The melting pot. <laughs> but the, melting pot, yes, thank you. Uh, that allows individuals from different viewpoints, from different backgrounds to come together and really discuss these aspects of the history of the community that they're in. That is a unique opportunity, and it's been so great to see those happening. UNC has a long tradition of it, but it seems like it's only been growing in recent years as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, in- interesting point of background, just to point out, that a lot of these issues... Well, I'll just put this out there. The guy who originally wrote Dixie was born in Ohio, Wrote the song in New York City, and it originally was performed solely in New York City. Just because to give of away how <laughs> the, this there are national issues at play, even in how Southern culture is viewed by others, and then in some ways embraced. It's an odd thing to say, but the South essentially took the New York City play and made it their own. They culturally appropriated it in terms of embracing the Dixie song and what it represented. That. I don't know whether it was originally intended to be mocking or in some way like a humorous parody, but the South made it its Mm -hmm. own in response to it. Yeah. So
2: Sarah, like what was your sense coming from a very, I mean, essentially Northern place Mm -hmm. and going to to UNC because like, I just, I found it to be very different and it, it was interesting and sort of difficult to try and talk to people that I knew otherwise about like, the differences and sort of the stark differences in terms of just like how people were. And yes, there was sort of the Southern hospitality, but also that like, there was a very different sort of overtone to certain racist things that went on Mm -hmm. and how people interacted um, and just, yeah, a different culture.
1: Yeah. It was, it was interesting for me because there are, there are some some substantial overlaps between the i would say the the presentation and the hospitality of the the south and the hospitality of the midwest mm-hmm. um there is this this sort of shared understanding of a coming together and um an understanding of family and particularly an understanding of coming together and family around food um mm-hmm. but I think that the underlying valences of those, of those types of things are, are very different. Um, I think the, the, the racist and and racialized undertones of kind of what is going on in the South continue to be there in the Midwest. And I would, I would also argue the Northeast and all of that, but in, in different ways. Yeah. And so my understanding of sort of race relations growing up in a very white suburb of St. Louis were particularly, particularly difficult, I think. Um, the context around me was racially fraught, mm-hmm. but my particular lived experience was not, which is an interesting thing that you can easily experience in the Midwest, um, particularly as you move further north from where I was, right. Yeah. And so I was—I was an interesting nexus point of the Midwest and the South. Yeah. Um, right on the border of the Southern Illinois and Missouri, which is right at the border of what counted as Confederate or not was was Recent particularly difficult. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean. I was going to say, and it's funny because, like, Maryland is the south to everywhere in the north and the north to everywhere in the south. Sure. And I feel like, like, even some of my experience in high school, which was, like, some of the weird, like, (laughs) legit the weirdest demographics, essentially, that, that, like, I've ever understood of a high school. It was, like, I don't know, like. 40% Jewish and 60% black. And then there were like some random Russians that, like, and there were like more and more, like, as time went on. But like, a lot mm. of the Russian community was moving into the school district. But like, this was the school that a lot of black parents either lucked into or moved so their kids could go there. Mm. And like, a heavy Jewish population. And so, like, there was this super weird demographic and. I would assume different experience that I had in high school compared to pretty much anywhere else I could have gone to high school. Yeah. And
1: um, yeah, and I don't I I I felt like very much and this feels like such an an ancient thing to say, I guess, but I I do think that like living on the Mississippi and the the confluence that that produces within the United States also produces an interesting combination of people that you interact with. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, for example, in my senior year of high school, uh, Katrina happened and St. Louis was kind of one of the most, the closest, most, most Northern centers, which you could send refugees from Katrina Mm. Um, who potentially had family there or whatever, but like my senior year of high school, we were inundated with an influx of Katrina refugees. And so all of a sudden we had this, like our Midwestern town had this influx from the South, um, which was a, a kind of fascinating experience on like ways in which I think we, I would say, but me particularly as a high school student had not really thought about region in the United States before. Um, -hmm. Because I just hadn't, like, my travel experiences were abroad, they were international, or they were to, like, vacation destinations in the United States. It was not a sort of deep consideration of what does it mean to be American?
2: Right. Um, And, like, where do other people come from and what is their experience? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so having a whole bunch of people from New Orleans kind of show up in my high school was was just an interesting understanding of both what it means to be american but also what it means to live in this particular confluence of the united states where you are accessible mm-hmm. you are both separate from and accessible to other places
2: yeah they should have exchange programs like within the u.s
1: Fucking yeah <laughs> <laughs> so what else do we want to talk about with this story
0: um what? yeah it's Spencer. Well, it's just one thing I was kind of pondering when I was reading this, but I almost imagined this story as being a conscious act of fantasy by the main character when he was coming home from the bar. That Mm. it was almost just that when he came home from the bar, feeling that righteous anger from what he experienced, this was almost his imagining of what he could do rather than something that necessarily could play out. Because it almost felt like the story started out very real, got emotional anger, but became increasingly satirical and fantasy-focused as the story went on. Um, I I'm not I'm not necessi- I have no idea what n- in what way the author intended me to read this, but I got a feel of that. Because mm-hmm. by the end, particularly when it, it's almost like I'm seeing it through a mist, in terms of the description now of where now all of the black community has adopted this emblem, and now because of their constant efforts, the flag is coming down forgotten every more. It feels almost just like it's become almost intentionally less realistic as the story has gone on. Yeah, and I just. Mm-hmm. I, I, I very much
2: agree with your assessment and it sort of reminded me of the Futurama like what if machine. Um, and, and I think it's a very, I guess I don't read it as a, a pondering of the main character, but more of the author. Sure. Of a, you know, what if somebody were to decide that, no, this is this is we're taking this like you you can't use this anymore what would happen rather than the main character. Cause I don't know, I guess it's the, uh, we already had one story, uh, with it. And, and I feel like, a, you know, dream sequences are, are lazy. <laughs> fair point.
0: Fair mm-hmm. point. Well, did you, did you have something else, BJ? I didn't mean to cut you off there.
2: Oh, no, no, no. I, I, I did not. Um, Sarah? Okay.
1: No, I have been absolutely delighted with this conversation. Um, As I was telling Spencer before we started recording, it has been a number of years since I have read this story, but I I read, I think, selections from this compilation, if not the whole compilation, for one of my uh, graduate classes at UNC, but out of all of them, this is the one that has stuck with me, which when you, BJ, were were kind of talking about our our lack of a short story for this week... (laughs) Yep. This is always the short story that pops into my head. And so I am I am both very glad to have gotten a chance to talk about it and also a little sad at not having a reserved short story anymore <laughs> to pull on us.
2: Well, we'll just have to actually do our homework this time and uh, take oh, a boy. nod
0: towards Hermione. Hmm. <laughs> it, it It's interesting as well. You said this came out in a compilation in 2010?
1: I think so. Um, it's interesting because yeah.
0: from the link... And the link that BJ sent, it seems like it was originally published all the way back in 1996 in a uh, university journal.
1: Yeah, so I think that this is one of the stories um, that kind of got pulled by Percival Everett to create this compilation. Sure. Um, But it is, you know, I think that we could talk a long time, and I'm not sure that it's entirely fruitful, but it is interesting that this, that Percival Everett was putting forth this particular vision of what it means to fight against, reclaim, you know, whatever your options are, these sort of um, symbols and rhetoric of white power in 1996, did you say, Spencer? Uh,
0: That's, yeah, As opposed to
1: the conversation that we're having in 2018,
2: 2019. Yeah, I feel like we go back and forth on um we swing in different directions in terms of these things and so like i would say that this story kind of felt like kind of 90s to me Mm -hmm. um well kind of because of the references to 60s and 70s things um (laughs) that that i was vaguely familiar with um but but also in the i think that was a little bit more in the consciousness at the time, rather than in the mid 2000s. Yeah. Um,
1: and what do you mean? What the accepted discourse is around what we do in the face of these types of symbols?
2: Yeah. Um, okay. And, and so like, how, how do we deal with racism? What, what is the sort of ex- accepted way to talk about it? What is, what are theories as to how we combat it and and a lot of the other things around it which i think go under periodic shifts of like what the and not just racism but like other issues like how do we deal with it and sort of what's the sort of culturally accepted way to shift away from it Mm -hmm. and their institutional changes and and some people agree with it and some people don't and there are voices within any given community as to how to combat issues that that community is facing and i feel like this this is a previous shift um but but i think it's an interesting one um and i'd actually i'm gonna see if i can see the rest of the stories on libby because i i, I like reading <laughs> short stories i think a little bit more than you do sarah <laughs>
1: um well I, go ahead spencer
0: well uh do you have, do you have anything else to answer no i don't well, it's, it's, <laughs> Not it's one good. of those things where I, f- I, f- I feel like we could discuss a lot more things i mean we haven't even mm-hmm. addressed the concept of whether this kind of confronting of images is a successful way of confronting yeah. racism bigotry or anything else because that's a whole avenue of debate about whether it's an ultimately successful strategy in addressing these broad societal issues and impulses. But we could spend hours on what is a seven-page story, and I think we've addressed enough for now, and it will be fun (laughs) talking with you guys more off-pod as more things come to mind as we just think about the story because this one's going to resonate with me for a while. Yeah. Sarah, Um, Sarah, very much thank you for um, putting this story into into our minds and even just putting this author into my consciousness, because I otherwise wouldn't have heard of him, probably.
1: I think you're gonna enjoy him, Spencer. Looking Um, forward to it. So, BJ, if uh, readers have a burning need to think about how they might address (laughs) other cultural issues of our time, where might they go?
2: Um, so specifically, we did a uh, pod on She Names Them, which we discussed a lot of <laughs> other fem- feminist issues, um, and we took a two-page story and talked to, about it for, I think, an hour and a half, um, maybe mm-hmm. more. Um, but you can find all of that content on um, as well as iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and if you have any questions, comments, complaints. Or suggestions, you can click Contact Us at the upper right-hand corner of amangumtalks.com, and we read all of the things, which are usually spam, so we'd love to hear something else. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are a bunch of other pods that deal with basketball and whiskey and random TV shows that apparently Spencer likes to watch drunk. Um, and uh, More talk about than watch, but you know. Uh, I just assume so- that you're three drinks in like usually when, when you live your life. And speaking boy. to
1: uh, this sort of cultural commentary the Succession podcast on or the Succession series of Mangum Talks TV is choice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you Sarah. We're recording another one tomorrow and it's gonna be a thing. Oh boy.
1: I don't, I think these are gonna come out at about the same time and and just prog. <laughs>
0: Uh, i'm excited to uh
2: to find out um and with that uh have a good night everybody and we'll look forward to the next story
1: all right bye y'all